0: Welcome to Alchemical Dialogues, an Amber Light podcast. Join Dr. Henry Critella and Joel Lessie's for their discussion on spirituality and poetry beyond the edge. The information provided on this website and these podcasts is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this website and in these podcasts is intended to be a substitute for medical, health, therapeutic diagnosis or treatment. The opinions expressed by the guests in these podcasts are not necessarily the opinions of Amber Light International and anyone associated with this organization.
1: Thank you, Louise. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, Joel. Oh, thank you, Henry. Thank you for having me today. I've been looking forward to this, and thank you to all that are zooming in on the recording. The title of this podcast is Spirituality and Poetry Beyond the Edge. I love that title. So Joel's a good friend of mine. We hang out in Rochester, but he also hangs out a lot in Buffalo, New York. A little bit about Joel. He was nominated by Art Voice in 2013 and 14 as Buffalo's best poet and won the honor in 2014. He's been published in various magazines and publications and he has a manuscript entitled Odyssey of Oxen's Breath. So I look forward to that. He's founded Ground and Sky poetry series in both Buffalo and Rochester and facilitated numerous poetry workshops and classes in the Western New York region. Joel's poetry, links and questions are paradigm edges of the sacred, mundane and profane. His own mystical search was the question, what is the matter with me? Submerged aspects and lost memories arose barreling inward. This question shattered a false sense of self healing the wounded child and tempering himself into a whole and genuine human being. Authentic expressions of his journey are documented in his poetry, which reveals the individual and universal aspects of our inherent and potent creativity. Everything is flux. Everything is poetry. Joel, that is so you. <laughs> I'd love to hear a couple of your poems just to get started.
2: Conversation, Henry, is always it's based in friendship. And poetry is a kind of conversation. And I just want to say thank you for your many years of friendship and having me on today. I know that we've grown together spiritually and, and in friendship and um through many different kinds of incarnations. So But uh, yeah, why don't I begin with a poem? It's kind of a poem that I I say often in readings. If I never wrote another poem, this would be enough to begin and end my journey. And, And so it's called Through the Day. This night, moment walking, home with moon, shining mind, this moment itself, autumn bends, turning in moonward toward home. It is and is not here. Still moon, no mind, same moment, never ending. That was like upon reflection of some experiences that I had had and one in particular came together and I I feel if I would never write another poem, that would be enough. Hmm. Do you
1: have another one?
2: As we mentioned in the bio, it's the mundane, sacred, and profane. And I think that we all carry these aspects in us. And uh, so there's a haiku called Dao. For those of you familiar with Taoism, the Dao De Jing is a, uh, it's the second most widely published and read book in the world behind the Bible. So this is a short haiku that goes like this. It's called Dao. A hurricane, is a poem whose voice is heard from the eye and i think in that sense we each are little mini hurricanes struggling with the sacred profane and mundane you know
1: very much so yeah talk more about that and what you mean by the edge so yeah i've come in my
2: examinings or explorations spiritually i've come to see that we all live in certain we live in like a tent or like a paradigm. It's like a, we can't see beyond the edges of our paradigm. It's really the foundation or formation of it is our identity. Our identity is formed, I am this or that. And it's as through our socialization and biology, our identity is shaped, our paradigm is shaped. And so I'd had some very difficult experiences, very painful experiences in early childhood and adolescence which forced me to question, what is the matter with me? And this questioning intensively for a long time, very intensively, reading about world spiritual tradition and uh, mysticism, questioning very intently, broke open something in me and a light shone. And I think it was a shattering of a kind of false sense of self or false sense of identity that really, when we talk about paradigm, The master Yunman says you can be, do you master the 24 hours of the day or are you mastered by the 24 hours of the day? Same is true of identity. Identity is necessary for us, but are we shaped and mastered by our identity or do we transcend it and then utilize it for the benefit of living a high quality life, a good life?
1: And for you, that's reflected in your poetry.
2: It is, yeah, very much. So, and I know, Henry, you asked me to have some poems ready. And I do. I have this poem which segues into segues into my childhood. And uh, I, had a, I had a very difficult parent who, my mother was a very strong and uh, kind of, well, I'll just read the poem and it's sort of uh this is part of the documentation of my of my history that brings me to this place but it's called turn my neck behind me gazing on my past retrospective a cloud it should be razor sharp and clear but it is a haze of time a cloud settling four figures emerge in place of that cloud I see now the cloud is a great void. My mother Mary, torrent of needle to spoon, hot red, ripped hair from my head, punch bone blue bruise, a black hole of loathing everything, self, others, me, carved out my lungs and heart with a mother's knife, left me at the mercy to be raised by the lonely hum of the refrigerator, in an empty bottle, mother drunken, raging, dissipating. The four emerged figures, bridges, and time art still timeless. Touch, love, itself eternal, light granted, shared, and given. This light bridge of the four blend figures clear into reality, into names, names into sound. Sound Lizzie, Lisa, Amy, Heidi. Thank you. Now I into song. Now I sing.
1: Oh, yeah. thank you. Yeah, yeah very evocative. You know, it's, See, it's, poetry it's, is playing with the edges of what we think of as sacred, what we think of as, oh, just mundane, even what we think of as profane. But those edges, they don't have firm boundaries, do they?
2: You know, they don't. And I think that it is possible, no matter how profane your life is, how much suffering you have endured, it is possible to delve into this questioning who am I or what am I in the traditions you studied, Henry, Tibetan Buddhism, Sufism, who am I is the fundamental mystical question. What am I is the fundamental mystical question. And when you go deeply enough, it's been my experience that you resolve both the profane and the mundane, into everything is sacred. There's a a sanctity or everything is sacred when when we enter deeply enough into ourselves and see that the quality of everything here, while physical and material, in its essential nature, spiritual.
1: So my experience has been that a lot of spiritual groups and paths talk that. But when it comes to actually doing it, they're so interested in the light. They're so interested in this paradigm of sacredness that's full of love and light, that they skirt the profane.
2: Yeah, spiritual bypassing. It's called spiritual bypassing. Right,
1: right. And so I'm thinking about Sufi poetry, like, you know, Rumi was, for many years, the most favorite poet in America because of the translations. I think mostly Colman Barks. Yeah. So Sufi poetry is notorious for using metaphors of intoxication and wine and drunkenness and maybe even sex. Yeah. Um, but it's always supposed to represent something very spiritual and enlightening and falling in love with the divine and being intoxicated by divine words and and maybe they were just talking about getting drunk <laughs> you know that or, rumi
2: R- R- rumi i'm sure was drunk on love rumi he was. was drunk on love for yeah. sure but
1: <laughs> so we're talking we're talking about the edges i i get it but i'm just trying to get back to in the midst of the depth of the profane and yeah. the muck of going through life something comes alive it comes alive in your poetry
2: well I, I can i can tell you that at this point i'm grateful for the suffering that i've had let me assure you it's not always been the case <laughs>
1: <laughs> so tell me how how did you get into poetry how did that evolve yeah. for you
2: so I had, in college, I had, I didn't know what I wanted to do or be or study. And I took a, a final exam in a, in a freshman course and did very well on it, very effortlessly. It was an English class. I said, this comes naturally to me. Let me try this. And so I became a, an English major. And I met a profound creative writing professor, uh, Major Reagan, who's very famous in Northeast Ohio. He just passed away a couple years ago. But he ignited my poetic life he really ignited my poetic life he was an extraordinary teacher great listener great lover of poetry i mean just an extraordinary human being he sort of opened the door ignited that and then you know i say this also when i share i've never been an ambitious writer i'm not out to publish 26 or a thousand poems at all my style of writing is to wait until a poem comes And in that, I I want to be certain that it is not me really that is speaking, but maybe something through me and for me, right? I mean, that's how the most honest and genuine poetry comes, that if I wait and still, and not search or wait or want or desire or, or be ambitious, but wait, what comes through me is, you know, I'm very, I have to tell you, I'm very pleased with this with the poem, Turn My Neck Behind Me Gazing at My Past retrospective. Because I feel it lodges and dislodges things in others because of its truth, Right. you know, yeah. Yeah,
1: very much, very much. Your poetry is very spiritual and provocative and you yourself are very committed as a spiritual person. Yeah. Uh, Can you talk a little about that? Well, I'll tell you that
2: I'm both, it's not a choice, it's just what I am, but I'm grateful that I did not, I, I did not choose any other path in this because my suffering, my, the difficulties that I have seen could have spun out a lot of different ways for me as a human being. Luckily, I have a very intense introspective nature, which allows me to be here today to share with you it from a spiritual perspective. Life is not for the faint of heart. It's a serious place with serious consequences. And so I'm I'm grateful and my commitment to spirituality has been grown by whatever that thing is, the one we call, the one, the light, has grown me into this. I feel that, you know, the universe, or if you want to even say God, you know, I take God as my teacher, my friend, and I am his student. I hope to be, you know, I hope to be worthy to be God's student, to be a student of life. And so... Through confidence and through the years, it grows and deepens each year a little bit and little bit and little bit. And so, yeah, I just would say that about it. I don't know that I'd say too much more than that. Yeah.
1: So I don't make sure we have a chance for people to comment or ask questions. And feel free to uh, raise your hand on Zoom or a chat or share something if you want. Kathleen?
3: I
4: would like to ask Joel to speak about the nature of poetry. What what makes something a poem versus prose or a string of words?
2: Well, Kathleen, I love this question because it goes to the very nature of beyond the paradigm, beyond the edges of paradigm. Because really, in the intro we said everything is flux, everything is poetry. Right? If you are a musician, your life, be that note, right, Henry? Like if you are a martial artist, your life is just practice. It is practice honing discipline to elevate yourself. And so I I see my life as a poem. All my actions, thoughts and speech, my intention are just verses in a poem that I'm offering. And so when you talk about what is a poem, It's self-defined. What is a poem for you? And what is a poem for me is what makes a poem is that it's true, authentic, genuine, and comes from someplace that is not me, that I want to wait and still, as I said before, till something else comes through me that speaks for me. That, That way you ensure the authenticity of the poem.
1: Uh, Maria, Christina, you were asking a question to talk about storytelling.
2: Storytelling. Do you like storytelling, Henry? Yeah. What do you like about it?
1: Well, the stories I like are not scripted. The stories I like, you know, I could read a story and I just cannot read it word for word because it doesn't feel real so a story is an unfolding it has a pattern to it and at the same time the storytelling leaves room for creativity and elaboration and in the the moment
2: right in in the the moment
1: and telling a story i haven't done it in front of a large group of people but in a lot of the classes i teach i tell a lot of stories including about me and it depends on who I'm talking to. And certain elements come out that I didn't even know were in the story. So it's a, it's kind of a creative, even though there can be a pattern to it and you kind of know what you're gonna say, there's a creativity and excitement to it that makes it real and, and heartfelt.
2: I, I feel that my poems are my stories. Mm-hmm.
1: That my poems are my
2: stories, they're also my documentation. When you've lived on the edges of some suffering, like I have. You want to be validated and you want documentation. Look, this is my story. So I think storytelling is very important. For me, it comes in the form of poems. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Elaine?
4: Um, I have a couple things, a couple questions. Having some experience all my life with writing, I don't call it poetry. I just call it expressions, Mm -hmm. but um, so, but without going into that, what I'm curious, I have two things I'm curious about with your perspective, and by the way, those pieces were beautiful. Oh, thank you. Gorgeous in in all ways. One is, you talked about um, waiting until the moment, Mm. waiting until it comes, two and four. I totally, Totally, totally get that. However, I don't know about you, but for me, it seems to have taken many, many years to go from me trying to do something as opposed to, and then into allowing, and then even further into something that I can't even describe. So I'm curious about you, if you have had a sense of of a trajectory or an evolution in that happening, that coming to you. That's part one.
2: When we talk about life, we have to talk about hand in hand with life should be practice. It doesn't matter what that practice is, but there's always a beginning of practice. And, you know, it's funny in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, they talk about in the expert's mind, there are few possibilities in the beginner's mind, there are endless possibilities. So it's kind of like a paradox because you really don't know what you're doing in the beginning and yet everything is possible. And as you travel through time and through the years, hopefully, if you are looking for what is genuine and authentic in yourself your own inner voice you know we talked about dao a hurricane is a poem whose voice is heard from the eye if you are that hurricane and your voice is heard from your own eye from your own silence then you are sure that your practice is moving in the direction that is right for you the only thing to do here in life through all my mystical searches is to find your own your own voice and express that and so there's no wrong way Right? There's no wrong way to find your voice. And that's part of the way this place has been built is that through all your stumblings or my stumblings and our mistakes and errors, they just teach us more deeply like, oh, okay, like this is what feels genuine and authentic for me. So as, as you travel on, so when you begin, you pick up a pen and you've never written a poem, you write a poem, then you begin a conversation with something that always in exact proportion to your effort you will merge with and do it something beyond yourself and this is also i feel the point of life and it sounds like what it was described you were describing
4: are you saying that more effort is needed
2: no what i'm saying is your effort not your effort to write.
4: Okay, your effort to be- uh, Genuine,
2: to to be true to yourself, Mm -hmm. to be good and true to yourself. Mm -hmm. That effort will manifest in ways that you can't begin to imagine because it's unimaginable. It's part of the process here that how we see ourselves today is not where we will be tomorrow. And by looking by the mystical search, the inner exploration, You will come to new incarnations of yourself. And those incarnations may take the form of writing today and painting tomorrow. The the thing about it is that when we hold fixed to an identity, I am a poet, then we cut off the fact that tomorrow you may be a painter. And it doesn't matter as long as you're genuine and authentic with yourself.
4: I like this idea of the mundane, the sacred, and the profane, that everything. Everything is is subject to
2: examination.
4: examination. Experience examination. I was I was thinking capture, but that was a little bit too um, too uh, restricted. But so my sense is having experienced people write, and I've had I've listened to people write letters, to people write um, emails, to people who write blogs which can seem very mundane and very, uh, or even profane Right. and when given the opportunity to literally express that, you use the word before conversation. Yeah. Something comes alive. What do you think about quality of the expression that creates, makes somebody be able to be published or admired or themed versus the common Joe's is simply writing.
2: I love this question because it also touches on the edges of paradigm, going beyond the edges of the paradigm of identity. It's our identity that often limits the quality of our writing and the quality of our life because we are operating from, I have to be a teacher. I have to be an administrator. I have to be a housewife. I have to be a driver. And we operate within this paradigm, but when you shatter that paradigm, there's a fluidity that happens where your heart opens and begins to express itself. And when your heart opens and begins to express itself, there's a a quotation and a tradition that says, words from the heart penetrate the heart. When you begin to eliminate the paradigm of identity, and speak genuinely from your heart, and that too is a practice, not the writing from your heart, but finding your heart, finding the silence that is the still small voice within and expressing that, then you deepen where your words lay in other people, in their hearts and in their minds. It is very much about the the quality of going beyond the edges of paradigm and identity, I think to take time to quiet and silence, to listen and ask, what is my voice? What is my voice today? And what does it want to say? The mystical search is very simple. It's very hard to follow, but very simple to talk about. You know, it is, who am I? What am I? What is my voice? These are all essentially the same question.
1: Thank you. Sure. So we're talking about finding ourselves. And I've always thought, and I feel more strongly now than even when I was younger, that there's so many different ways to find your voice, but to stereotype it a little bit. The arts is where the soul seems to get expressed. Sure. get expressed in science. I mean, I have a friend who, uh, I haven't talked to him in a long time and I've told this story before, but uh, he got a tenured professorship at Harvard because of the elegance of an experiment he designed and elegance means how simple it was and in retrospect how freaking obvious it was yeah and it was the simplicity that led to this outcome that caught the attention of the reviewers so yeah to me that's that's art you know it is yeah i agree with you um, and it was it clearly was an expression of him because he told me why he thought of this I could see him in that. It's the way he thinks. What I'm hearing is we can express ourselves in so many different ways, but you have to get rid of the, the shoulds. You have to be, yeah. And a lot of what we do in our culture and in our schools and our everything is try to define something, right? Know, give it a label, give it a name, and. Um, all the stories of artists who went to art school and just got devastated because they had to do something a certain way, and yeah. it it wasn 't them I think that 's what I hear in your poetry it 's just this this heartfelt expression
2: that 's a great compliment I mean, if there was anything that I could hope hope for it would be that yeah,
1: yeah, can we hear another phone
2: yeah, definitely it 's funny. I was just hoping you 'd ask. <laughs> <laughs> this is called Winter Moon in Autumn. Still arching bare branches, leaf swirl in a hush. River rain, moon in autumn, solitary silence of lovers searching. All unfolds only one way, all uncertainty unnecessary replaced by faith lovers call to one another and embrace under a winter moon in autumn
1: i love that last line thank you
2: oh thank you
1: yeah really sweet so we didn't mention in your bio that you also have a podcast that you call unraveling religion
2: i do yeah yeah
1: Yeah. can you talk a little about that because i think it's connected to your poetic nature.
2: We spoke about Mage Reagan, my mentor in poetry from Kent, Ohio, from Northeast Ohio. In Buffalo, in South Buffalo, there's a man, Richard Wicca, who at a birthday party one day, taking histories for uh, this person's birthday, how did you meet this guy, right? And so I gave a little answer how I met my friend. And then Richard looked at me and said, would you ever want to do a podcast? And unhesitatingly, I said, no. I don't want to do a podcast. I, I've never thought about that. I have nothing to do it about. I wouldn't know how to do it. But about six months later, <laughs> after ruminating and thinking about it, I was like, you know, I could do something on spirituality. And so the title just came. Uh, this was back in 07. So I've been doing it about 13 years. Unraveling Religion came. And Richard is, was really and is my mentor for the podcast. I just put it on iTunes podcast. I have about eight shows. I have more on the original site that's not iTunes. I've met some extraordinary people and learned some amazing things. I've interviewed Irish poets, Jewish mystics, Gazan uh, doctors who've written books, who've lost family members in war. I've interviewed atheists and friends. And uh, I interviewed this guy too, as well. We've done a few shows, Henry. So we've done shows on dreams and healing and so many different, wonderful topics.
1: Yeah. I'm interested in the connection with, to me, that the expression of your spiritual search comes out in the title, unraveling religion. And I think it's connected to your poetry and your poetic nature too.
2: Yeah. I grew up reformed Jew. My dad's Jewish. My mom is Irish Catholic and I was very secular in my upbringing, you know, very mainstream, mainstream America. And I found that I didn't really look or think to look until it became ripe in me, the question, what is the matter with me for a deeper element in life? And so the sufferings and the difficulties that I had really stimulated this question, what is the deeper element in life? And it was really through reading the book. I went to Israel for a year did a lot of introspection, and something during that year when I came back broke open in me, a layer in me broke open after the intense examination of what is the matter with me. I think all these things come together because are you a poet or are you a painter? Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you're, you know, as Rumi says, if you're a true human being, gamble everything for love. If you're a true human being, if not leave this gathering, half-heartedness does not reach into God's ma- majesty and you keep stopping along mean-spirited
1: roadhouses. I love that. Mm-hmm. That's actually a roomie that I don't know. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about, isn't it? That's really what it's all about. It's Half-hearted,
2: Half-heartedness does not reach into God's majesty.
1: Right. And what prevents us from doing that
2: is really the, the paradigm of identity, identity and paradigm. So to go beyond the edges reaches it can potentially reach into God's majesty.
1: But it's a gamble. <laughs> it's a big one.
2: Yeah, I, it's a big one. It's the mystical search is not for the faint of heart, as, as we said before. But, you know, I, I've struggled and it's in the bio. I, I'm an advocate for individual mental health through my own experiences of mental health distress, as well as the healing from that and really understanding what mental health distress is. You know, in certain cultures, what we call here psychosis in certain indigenous cultures is seen as the mark of a gift, of a gifted spiritual person Mm -hmm. who is taken under the wing of an elder and said, you have a gift. So they're given that narrative. I have a gift that I may offer to the community. And then it's nurtured and fostered and developed into shamans and
1: seers. Yes. And you're just making me think of the arts as, again, it's not just the arts; it's science too. But but the arts as an expression of creativity and soulfulness. And we've been talking about spirituality and individual growth, but they're also agents of Soulfulness in society for social evolution and social change. The arts are so powerful. Yeah. And we've become such an intellectual kind of society, and we think reason is everything when it, to me, it clearly isn't. Right. And the arts can be real paradigm shifters.
2: I mean, that's... the arts are revolution I mean it's a revolution it's a it's a non-rational way of introducing both reflection and vision into society the arts music painting poetry and so in, in America it's really not looked upon as a way to make a living I think because we're so steeped in what possession what we own and what our job title is that we really have a difficult time letting go of that. Our identity is rooted in security. It's rooted in uh, identity of what I am and, and what I do and what I have. And when, when you try to, I was forced to let go of it. So I feel comfortable saying that the wisdom of uncertainty is faith and trust that it's okay if you are not these things. There's a quote by Mage Reagan, my, my mentor, who said, what you are is more than what you want."
1: Mm. Yes. You spent a lot of years with him, right?
2: I did. Yeah. He was a, we would correspond. He was in Kent, Ohio. I was in Buffalo for many years after I graduated and we had a very tender, a very tender relationship. He had contracted polio when he was seven and uh, wasn't expected to live until his mid thirties. If that, and just passed away, at the age of like early 70s. A testament to his will as just a, a fighter and a, a will of iron, just a strong person. Yeah.
1: So, what are your thoughts on the kind of poetry that is very, very measured, done in a very particular style uh, versus more free verse?
2: I would say that it has its place for sure. As long as it's not excluding the free verse, I don't think the free verse would exclude the, uh, (laughs) the punctuated stanzas and formalized ways of doing it. I write haiku, not in a traditional form, but if the form wasn't formalized, I wouldn't write in that manner. So I think the way in which we lay out standardized forms of poems, whatever they might be, haiku, whatever can be a, a, a lily pad, a jumping point, into something that's free-flowing and free.
1: Yes. The other thought I had is the difference when you hear poetry versus read poetry. Oh, yeah. Can you talk a little about that?
2: Well, I want to say that um, in 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 a certain mystical tradition, words, W-O-R-D-S, words are actually, more truthfully, worlds. WORLDS that we form worlds with our words. And so I really I feel that part of how we read what we what spirit of our breath infuses those words is is a much more palpable and real experience than say just reading it but I mean Reading it can also be wonderfully introspective. Again, there's no right or wrong way, but I do feel that like, when we hear others read their work, it has the, this is the reason for my Ground and Sky, the, the poetry series is that, it's my attempt to offer sacred community. And I do that because we share like we're doing now, and then we share poems and a sacred trust builds in sacred friendship. So yeah, so when you hear someone read live, I think that's the love that's infused with that poem and the understanding resonates with people more deeply.
1: So you're bringing up an interesting point is uh, somebody asked you about storytelling and then you had me talk about my my thoughts on storytelling. This podcast, the suggestion came from Louise who's organizing it. Yes. Her husband and I were having this discussion, either during a class or something, a Sufi class. And she said, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Louise, but basically it was just so exciting. Mm. And I'm a talker, but most of what I do is dialogue. It's talking with somebody, it's not a monologue. I mean, I can get into a monologue, but. I like it a whole lot better when there's a a give and take. And it seems to me that poetry, when it's read with people, just like you're talking about, something that there's a connection, there's a heart connection that develops. And that's so different than reading it alone. I mean, there is something to be said about reading it alone, reading it aloud, maybe reading it, When you're in a certain peak state, like on a spiritual retreat, you can get something out of it. But reading in community and having dialogue, that's why we call this alchemical dialogue. So I've been listening to a lot of uh, podcasts that are just uh, like webinars, one person talking. And I learn a lot and I like it. But there's something about people getting together and dialoguing.
2: Yeah. And
1: just being with each other and even if some people are more silent than others, there's an energy that develops and I think that's an art form in and of itself. And uh, I, I just get excited by that for I, you. I, it, it came up with an adolescent and a memory for me must have been late high school, early college you're probably old enough to remember the classic Romeo and Juliet movie. Of course, yeah. And it's almost embarrassing to say, but I still remember this. I had done my studying of Shakespeare in school and yeah, and I can remember, I was reading all the footnotes and I couldn't understand this and whatever. So I go to this movie and here it is in Shakespearean language. No footnotes, no explanation. I understood everything and I fell in love. Ugh. And it was like, what am I doing reading all the footnotes? What a stupid thing to do. And it became easier to read the poetry, but not as much as just seeing it in action. Mm-hmm. And then I then the power of the language and the mm-hmm. rhythm and the structure, you know, it's very structured, right? but it, it just jumped alive. I mean, it was just a magnificent piece of work. I still get goosebumps when I think about what a revelation that was. And and that to me is, that's poetry. It really got in.
2: Yeah. What well, made it human for you? Seeing, seeing people acted out made it human, made it real, made it tangible, not just words.
1: The thing that I'm remembering is yeah, everybody felt, every guy probably fell in love with Olivia Hussey and they were just beautiful and, but it wasn't just the acting. I actually got caught up in the language. Mm. I actually caught the rhythm of the language and I couldn't believe that it was carrying me. It was mm. the rhythm that was carrying me. Yeah. And uh, I think it helped, especially at that age, to see beautiful people who were you know, embodying it. Sure. But I caught the rhythm. I still remember that. I caught the rhythm.
2: Yeah.
1: It just inspired me to start, not just poetry. I I read a lot of prose out loud. Yeah. And it's the same thing. You, you have to catch the rhythm and it's not always the rhythm that's given. And it's not, you know, I don't follow all of the punctuation that somebody, an editor has put down because that's not often my rhythm. And when you change the rhythm, something breaks through, right? Yep. It's another edge. And yes. uh, that's just really exciting to me. Other other comments, questions? Dave?
3: Yeah, just about reading aloud. Um, you know, I struggled a long time with Finnegan's Wake. And when you start reading that aloud and hearing the sound of it that's when it really comes alive for me.
2: That's so cool. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It is cool. Yeah. I I did a thing for a month where on day one, I read page one and on day two, I read page one and two and so on. I did that for 30 days and it really totally blew my mind and changed how I saw it.
1: Wow. Go ahead. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Kathleen said over here, it's it's a spiritual practice, yeah.
2: That's so
1: true. Something gets revealed in language and in the rhythm of language and saying it aloud versus silently. Yeah. So one more thing on that, Um, as a practice, I find
3: that writing is a practice. So I don't just wait for something to come to me. I make sure that I write every day. Yeah, and that's even, wonderful. Too, what I'm writing yeah. is I can't think of anything to write about, right? And just eventually you'll go back and, and look at that stuff and, and you'll find the pieces of the poem that was waiting to come out. If you don't put in the work, writing on paper or typing at the keyboard or whatever it is you do, for me, you get blockages. Yes,
2: yes. And and I have, I have things that I have practiced that I exert, Try to exert daily as often as possible, but it's not poetry, you know,
3: so. Yeah, maybe.
2: (laughs) Well, no, but for every person, there's a different way. There's no wrong way. There's no wrong way.
3: No, my, I guess what I was going to suggest is even painting is poetry, right? And so differentiating between them. I, I think, you know, poetry is painting and painting is poetry, you know, and, and yep. writing software is poetry and, you know, it's how you come at it. Yeah,
1: it's everything true. is poetry. Yeah, Getting exactly. That. Elaine?
4: We touched on this a little bit before, talking about the arts and kind of the undervaluing of it and that area. My question is, do you think there is a role for the poet in society, in a culture, not just from a personal perspective, but a role which can entail a responsibility?
2: Well, well, poets poets are worldwide known as revolutionaries. I mean, politicians are often wary of poets. And so, you know, the Buddha, the Buddha himself never involved himself in politics, and yet he has influenced many things just from his genuine expression of what was true for him. So I think that there's definitely a, a role for poets in society and for each society and poet to determine what that is. Now, if the society is resistant to the poet, you have to examine why that would be the case, because our reflection and vision of today and tomorrow comes through art and so the poet is talking about what's going on what has been what is going on and what will be in ways that can really transform so much so yeah i definitely think that there's a place for poets in society and uh, yeah
1: we've been talking about the arts in general too like poetry is painting and painting is poetry and
4: don't
1: live out dance don't live out dance Kathleen says right in music and so we had a it's a little story that really moved me my oldest stepson when he was in college he was a music composer major and we went down to see they had the uh, local chamber symphony orchestra we're going to perform pieces written by certain students and his piece was chosen and He's into new music, so that's really hard for me. There's no melody, and he works it out mathematically. It's like I don't understand it. And but it's pretty tough. And he gave me he was his minor was in philosophy. So he gave me a little lecture saying how music is an agent of social change, which kind of makes sense to me. So we went down and it was a you know relatively short piece and I thought it was gonna be this new music. And he had—he told me later, he'd never heard his music performed live before. It was always on a computer. So it would come back in computer speak. So you have these professional musicians playing his music and it's the first time he heard it. It starts off with a cello, one note, and I burst into tears. And I still get it because it was just this sonorous note. And then this melody emerged and it's like, right. And I'm going with it, going with it. By the end of the piece, here's this new music. Yeah. It didn't have a melody. It was the kind of stuff that, right. I went up to him and I said, that note. And he said, B flat. (laughs) I still remember that. And I said, did you know? And he said, no, I never heard it loud. I never heard it live before. And I said, oh. well, did you know how you carried me? Oh. And he said, yeah, maybe. And I think that was probably real that his experience or my experience in my attempts at writing and music is sometimes you don't quite know what's coming or how it's going to come. And then it kind of lives on its own. Yeah. But, I still remember that as one of my really heartfelt experiences of in the space of five minutes. My whole concept of what I like changed. Well, wow. started with one note yeah. from a cello. Yeah.
3: So I think when, when you're dealing with any art, the minute you put your painting aside and put it out in the world, the minute you play the song the minute you publish the poem or written in some place that somebody will see it, it's no longer yours, right? It's not what you meant because the listener, the the viewer, the reader is going to bring their own blood to the poem, right? So it's, I think your experience was exactly the kind of experience I had
1: with John Cage. Yes. Right. Right. We're coming close to the end, I think. Joel, take us out with the poem. The title is,
2: I Come to the Altar Before God. I come to the altar before God, bound by nothing, driven by nothing, wanting nothing but him. Here, in this most sacred space, the altar dissolves. The veils fall away. Love, in its wordless form, is all.
1: Oh, thank you so much. This really touched my heart.
2: I'm so glad, Henry.
1: So you can find Joel on Unraveling Religion. How do they find that? Uh, Just type in Unraveling Religion on Google. Okay. And Ground and Sky Poetry? Is it Before Your Quiet
2: Eyes here in Rochester? First Wednesday when we're social distancing in ways where we can meet in spaces. It's also on Zoom, contact me if you're interested. Uh, I can get you the, the Zoom or, or conversation. We carry it once a month still, which is not in person.
1: I look forward to seeing you my friend and we'll stay in touch. Hopefully you can come back and have another another interview.
2: Another I would interview. love that. Henry, thank you so much. Oh, thank thank you,
1: you all.
0: If you find yourself enjoying our podcast please do us a favor and spread the word. Tell a friend about it. Post it on social media. If you or someone you know would like to participate in a future podcast, please connect with us through the Contact Us page. See our events calendar page for dates to our next live podcast recordings. We'd love for you to participate and ask questions. Alchemical Dialogues are live and unscripted conversations recorded on Zoom brought to you by the great folks of Amberlight International, a nonprofit organization co founded by Henry Cretella, M.D., and Kathleen Fitzpatrick, LCSW. We choose topics from our current social and cultural climate with an emphasis on humanism and spirituality.